0: Namotasab sab, goa tu arahatur, sama, sambudha sa. Namurta sab, goa tu arahatur, sama, sambudha sa. goa sam buddha namasam. Yesterday at the mealtime, there was a, a gathering of a small group of people and um, as sometimes happens in, in such situations, there an opportunity to uh, go into a consideration, a contemplation together of aspects of our practice. And in the course of that, what came up was the predicament that we all find ourselves in of having to tolerate a, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of, well, a lot of anxiety around uncertainty. So the experience of uncertainty and impermanence is something that in theory as, as Buddhists we're all familiar with and, and uh, respect the principle that we're supposed to be contemplating that all conditions are impermanent. However, the reality is that we're not that good at it. Uh, when the uncertainty of our life is, um, comes up uh, loud and clear and maybe we get some threatening medical diagnosis or or a friend or a family member gets a threatening medical diagnosis and and suddenly... Uh, things are not so sure anymore, or maybe it's our job situation or our relationship environment. The uncertainty was always there, but our capacity for really tuning into that, to really being at one with that, to doing what the Buddha wanted us to do, which was to know that, to know that all conditioned phenomena are in a state of flux, are unstable and uncertain, the capacity for tuning into that is, uh, a lot of the time, fairly obstructed and fairly minimal. Huh? And the result of that is we have all these coping strategies. We have uh, different ways of uh, um, distracting ourselves or telling ourselves stories uh, that means that we don't have to really face it. We don't really face this this reality of the. Uh, uh, vulnerability that we all live in and that has consequences and one of the consequences as I was saying yesterday is that the uh, collective anxiety that accumulates around this perception of impermanence and instability it tends to go underground. Uh, we're We're not really factoring it in and and that accumulates. and So there is this predicament that uh, all of us are living in a world where basically we're all, most of the time, telling ourselves stories that mean we don't have to face the raw reality of uncertainty. Myths that we've invented as human beings, including also a lot of religion, is a way of avoiding the from the deluded ego's perspective, the frightening reality of impermanence. And now, when you, for whatever reason, come across the recognition that it's possible to cultivate awareness, that this awareness that we're living out of is something that can be pristine and bright and informing an accurate perception and a realistic understanding of life and coming up with... Uh, genuine solutions to life's challenges, uh, or it can be clouded and polluted and distorted and consciousness is kind of warped so that we're not seeing clearly at all. Right? For whatever reason, we come across a recognition that it's possible to cultivate this consciousness. It's not just like you're born with what you've got and that's it, but rather it's something we can work on. And, and so an intuition of the validity of this dawns within us and regardless of whatever spiritual or religious conditioning we might have grown up with, something new and more relevant uh, is quickened within us and and this is really the beginning, I would say, of the, the spiritual journey, the spiritual search. is not just something we've been conditioned to believe in or to go along with, but we're genuinely... Are genuinely interested and enthusiastic about developing on the heart level, developing spiritually, and that's quite new, that's quite different. And what we're doing there is we're looking for a solution. We're looking for how do we live? What is it that sustains us through this uncertain existence of ours? Of course, there's lots of fun, lovely, great things that happen, but then there's a tendency to want to hang on to them. And the fact that they're all unstable, of course, produces some problems for us. How do we deal with that? How do we live in this existence with a, a body that uh, can enjoy good food and, and, and good company and nice holidays and, and nice music and all the sense pleasures, but we know it's going to die and we're going to lose everything? How do we deal with that? That's the spiritual question a very real question, a very relevant question. In fact, it's the question that the Buddha, our teacher, was motivated by when he went forth in search of truth around the age of 29 years old. So we're all in the same predicament. We have this question. And in the beginning, it produces some sort of enthusiasm, some sort of faith that it's possible. If you like, faith is quickened or trust. Faith is a tricky word, and um, many of us have difficulty with that word. Um, In Pali, though, however, the word that's translated as faith is sadha. And so whatever word we want to use, whether it's faith or trust or sadha, uh, there's something in that that generates energy and enthusiasm. Inspiration. Aspiration. Now, the maturity of this quality, whatever we call it, faith or trust, uh, sadha, the maturity of this is really significant because if it's not a conscious process, it can become unnecessarily difficult. You know, if we don't recognize how we're, much we're motivated by faith, by trust, you know, we for one reason, one thing, we can get rather pleased with ourselves thinking that we're the ones doing it often the time it's it's faith that's motivating us it's trust that's motivating us but if it's not a conscious process if we're not consciously aware of this process then we can take credit for it and get a little puffed up and 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 overly pleased with ourselves and that's of course unfortunate so it's uh what i would like to suggest and and perhaps uh, contemplate together this evening something along the lines of making this this faculty this function of faith or trust conscious and 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 working with it how to do this and what's its place in the uh, classic teachings that we have in this tradition we have what are referred to as the five spiritual faculties like we have the physical faculties of seeing hearing smelling tasting and touching uh, well we have the internal equivalence of of faith energy mindfulness concentration and discernment Santa sat I mean, I mean, he's a very well known and you spend any time studying practicing Theravada Buddhism these faculties become a big deal and This is, in fact, what we're honing down in our meditation. Samadhi, well, concentration and collectedness, that's just one factor. There's all these other factors. all energy and and mindfulness and, and faith and wisdom or discernment. So the first one on the list is the sadha, faith, trust. And in the beginning of our practice... When it's an initial sort of faith, it's kind of spurious and unreliable and a little bit even intoxicating because it it's kind of polluted with with uh, with hope. We get caught up in hope that somehow we hope that this confusing uh, challenging, sometimes frustrating business of life is all going to be sorted out, and that that gets us very energized and enthusiastic and And that initial level of faith, uh, once it gets uh, stirred up, well, we can become a little evangelical even. We want to go around converting people as if we know something when, of course, we don't know anything. But we do have something going and we're really motivated and it's very energising. Well, that's part of why it's important to get conscious about it. We don't really want to go around evangelising too much. It's embarrassing and... In fact, it puts people off. You know, if people go in the opposite direction and start preaching to them. You know. But it's important because it does energize us. It does motivate us. But the thing with it is, it fades out. We get used to it. This initial level of faith, this uh, spurious faith, if you like, it fades out. It doesn't doesn't really last. It's very initial and. And some people, it fades out faster than others. And there's a, a teaching story that I heard many years ago, I think it was at the Buddhist Society Summer School, I think, by a teacher by the name of Trevor Leggett, a very fine gentleman of the, the Zen School of Buddhism. And, well, whoever it was was telling it. The story is basically about, you may have heard this in some other context, but it's about digging for groundwater. Yeah, apparently there's very good evidence that there's there's water down here and you've just got to dig to it and you can access the water and whether it's the geological surveys that have been done or somebody's good on dowsing or for whatever reason there's uh, good grounds to expect that uh, we can find water if we just dig in the right place for long enough and so as the story goes, there's two people digging for water, and one person starts digging and digging and gets down three feet, still no water, four feet, still no water, five feet. Well, if you've ever been in a five-foot hole, that's a long way down, actually, and it's getting really tiring. And So this person, after five feet, says, well, I think I'm in the wrong place. So scamp us out, five foot, you can just about get out at five foot and Goes off and starts digging another hole. And of course, digging away, digging and digging. You probably know how the story's going to go by now that this person, of course, busily goes around moving from one place to the other and digs 25 foot holes. Whilst the other person, they had something else going for them. It's something like, you know, faith in their conviction. Faith in themselves, trust, not quite sure what it is, but something meant that they didn't give up after 5 feet. They dug another 5 feet, 10 feet, 15 feet, 20 feet, until guess what? After a 100 feet, they reached water. They've got what they were looking for. Now, that matters, doesn't it? That really matters. Uh, if If we give up too soon... Well, that's unfortunate and often we do tend to give up too soon and there's a very good reason for that, which is we don't actually have that something that keeps us going. It's more than just determination, that's a factor. But if it's just willful determination, that gets very exhausting. There's also something to do with this this heart quality is not necessarily just a conceptual belief but something that energizes and keeps us going. There's trust in ourselves, trust in our aspiration, trust in our motivation that keeps us going. And it's very important that we discover what this process is, make this this, this process conscious. And part of becoming conscious in that is is finding out when it fails and why it fails. Why do we lose faith? Why do we go off and dig another five-foot hole and another five-foot hole? And, you know, why do we keep changing our meditation system? Why do we keep changing our posture? Why do we keep changing our tradition? Why do we lack the ability to keep with what we set out with and, uh, if we look in that direction with the right attitude the right degree of sensitivity long enough probably probably won't take very long at all Actually, because it's pretty obvious that one of the reasons that faith is obstructed or compromised is that we have very strong habits for believing in our desires yeah. the more affluent we are the more inclined we are to just follow the desires that come along. We don't actually grow up going without very much, at least our generation, your generation, those of you that are a bit younger, our generation, my parents' generation, they did, They they went without all sorts of stuff. But from my generation onwards, we don't tend to go without a lot in our society. And so we tend to feel that, Desires come along. Actually, I'm entitled to follow them. Well, we are entitled to follow them sometimes if they're moral and not going to hurt anybody else. But part of the consequence of that, of always following our desires, is that when we get bored with something, I just, I don't want to do this anymore. We're really strongly motivated to give up and look in another direction, go somewhere else. So the habit of... Always believing in our desires does obstruct faith. Now, if we see this, that's a good reason for exercising restraint. Restraint as many of you have been following this teaching for a length of time, know, something the Buddha praised a lot, not out of some sort of fear of, of really fully appreciating life, but that is a dynamic, it's a spiritual muscle, Sangvara Indriya, the ability to hold... On this passionate outflow of desire to, until we're really ready to engage it. Yeah. Yeah. How much effort do we train in that? Now, again, because we're all into meditation, we do know that we have this opportunity to train. You know, it's chosen to stay with a particular meditation object or practice or, or discipline and, and then distracting thoughts and impulses and images arise, and want to follow them. Well, we can do that. But if we inhibit that, maybe by now we've already experienced that a certain strength comes from that. That strength of inhibiting conditioned desire is really important for protecting faith. We have the faith. Otherwise, we wouldn't have even gotten started. We have the faith, but it's very important that we learn how to protect, how to develop it. And part of that is, as I was saying, finding out what what is it that compromises it? What is it that means we can't engage skillfully? Because there is blind faith. There is naive faith, which, again, probably all of us are, to some degree, familiar with, if not in our own case, and seeing other people, are very motivated by this heart quality of, of trusting in something. and But... It's a naive kind of faith that doesn't open to doubt. Mm. Uh, some people of faith will perceive doubt as an enemy, as an opposition. Well, it's a kind of an opposition, but it's like the opposition that if you, you want to play chess and you want to improve your game, you find, you find a sparring partner who's better than you, or at least as good as you. As good as you is nice. You don't want them too much better than you. You keep losing. You want, you know, Two people who are equally good at chess or equally good at tennis, sparring with each other, you help improve each other's game. Well, so it is with faith and doubt. You know, the kind of faith that the Buddha was encouraging is the faith that's able to accommodate doubt, that sees doubt as its best friend. Now, of course, engaging in faith and engaging in doubt, engaging in this dynamic, this creative tension that faith and doubt generate, the goal, of course, is to arrive at knowledge, to arrive at understanding, the understanding that liberates us. But until we get there, these are some of the tools, the faculties we work with. On the one hand, there's faith, trust, confidence. On the other hand, there's doubt, willingness to question everything. Everything. And if there's a mutual respect, these two cooperate. So this is no longer a naive form of faith. This is really functional faith, really helpful faith, the kind of faith that generates an energy that takes us deeper. But this needs to be conscious. The spurious initial faith that is more closely akin to belief, that's actually a little bit dangerous yeah, as I said, we get a little bit preachy with that stuff and get a bit intoxicated. And if doubt comes along or somebody challenges us, we can get a bit irritated and and uh, upset uh, by having our initial spurious faith challenged. But hopefully we get over that fairly quickly and, and we get to recognise that doubt, the ability and the willingness to sensitively, mindfully question that which inspires our faith, to recognize these two things go together. And that essential in this process of making it all conscious and maturing and developing a wise form of faith that we can depend on is the faculty of trust, as I've mentioned earlier. Some people, uh, it's difficult to trust. And and there are very real reasons why they have difficulty trusting. But if we don't know how to trust as a psychological activity, if we don't know how to engage in trusting, then our (coughs) our faith can once again be obscured, can be compromised. Even though faith is there, even though our hearts are imbued with faith, have been quickened by faith, we don't know how to meet it We don't know how to engage it. You know, if if the limb of trust, the psychological limb of trust was, was betrayed or abused at an early stage in life, then it's like if our limb is injured and not healed, then atrophy sets in. And even though you want to pick up something, you can't. The limb just doesn't do what it's potentially supposed to do. And likewise, the psychological faculty of trusting if it's been damaged or wounded at uh, some stage of life and we're not able to engage it and so we can't really benefit from that faith that's been quickened in our hearts and and can't mature it can't develop it and and that's very unfortunate but the good news is there's something we can do about it you know just, as soon as we become aware that we have this deficit or this weakness and this limitation, the ability to simply trust, we see our mind always struggling to find some sort of security, some sort of idea, some sort of answer, Was running off to get more information about our predicament, rather than being able to simply open up and say, well, I've got a good motivation, I'm interested in reality, I'm making a sincere effort to keep the precepts, Uh, don't have intention to cause harm I'll trust in that but if we find we can't do that and we're always looking for some sort of synthetic security in an intellectual conceptual abstract understanding that temporarily relieves us from the anxiety of not knowing well that's one sign that you know we need to maybe be working on this, Mm -hmm. this faculty of trust and and we can work on it we can, we can experiment with trusting not overreacting and again naively trusting in somebody and getting ourselves inadvertently hurt again you know, just cautiously little by little experimenting well can I just trust that my motivation is good here a little bit and experiment and see or for some people maybe it means they need some help from somebody else That's also very regularly the case in our world these days that the faculty of trust has been so wounded early on in life that some sort of therapy is needed. And that takes also, that takes discernment and the first step towards engaging and expressing the humility which means we can ask for help when we need it and that already is... Nourishing trust. That already takes some trust. That's already a good thing. We're already taking responsibility. Uh, And uh, cautiousness that's required there means that we we want to take time. We don't want to rush into anything until we find that which is needed. What is it that's actually needed? Maybe it is for somebody. Maybe it's a talking therapy that's needed. Maybe for somebody else it's a it's a deep tissue massage therapy or, or uh, maybe it's what just what's needed is just getting into the body, coming out of the head and doing more exercises or joining a choir or doing something that means our practice is more embodied and we can learn to trust ourselves, get to know ourselves and like we get to know somebody else and we trust them. Well, getting to know ourselves in a way whereby we trust ourselves. And to say what trust actually is is not easy you know, the image that I uh, often reflect on and share with other people is uh, is like learning to float in the ocean and growing up in a, on a south pacific island myself I was never very far from the sea and we spent a lot of the summer uh, in the ocean and, and body surfing well that was great but also long distance swimming was great and I used to love swimming for very long distances and when you get tired what you do is just roll over on your back and breathe in a certain way and recover and it's great. But how do you do that? How do you do that kind of relaxation? It's a kind of not doing doing. It's a kind of a not doing doing that means that you relax, your holding in a way whereby the breathing resumes some sort of balance and the sea, the water holds you. And that's what trust can do. You know, when trust is functional, then we feel held. We can learn to let go of our rigid holding and defending and controlling ourselves. And, and one of the things that then comes online is that you know, faith becomes more accessible. You know, we can trust in this dimension of ourselves. This this can be a tremendous revelation that it's not just blind belief. Having faith in reality, having trust that there is a real reality is not just a blind belief. Faith and trust are very gentle. There's a humility and a modesty and a cautiousness that comes with trusting and living with faith. And there's maybe a recognition that we can work with intuition. You know, whereas previously it was all up in the head and we struggle to become very clever. And a lot of us do become very clever at the stories we tell ourselves and the, the mental gymnastics that we perform so as to get a handle on life. And we have this. But over and over again the conceptual understanding we have of life doesn't. And we trip up and we fall into despair again or depression again or get overwhelmed again. And where did it come from? Well, we weren't really balanced. And a symptom of that not being balanced is we're up in our head all the time. But if trust has been sufficiently healed and we're learning to become conscious and engaging uh, faith and living a life of faith, we start to recognize the place of intuition. We can let go of you know sometimes the the arrogance that comes with blind belief or or naive faith. It can be rather rigid and arrogant. And and this is this is applies right across the board. All belief systems fall prey to this, including Buddhism. You know, we can we can be a very committed Buddhist who believes in all sorts of things including that the law of karma and rebirth doesn't exist and that was only something for primitive Buddhists in India 2600 and something years ago but with such a belief there's a rigidity and, and is not the same thing as a heartfelt trusting, respectful relationship with the teachings and so learning to access intuition Not being afraid to question our intuition is all part of making the process of faith conscious and and fully engaging it in our spiritual practice. We can, of course, we do, of course, want understanding. But the understanding that the Buddha was talking about, the knowledge the Buddha was talking about, is not speculative knowledge. The knowledge the Buddha was talking about is unshakable knowledge. It's not just concepts about reality. It's clear seeing knowledge. And so, yes, of course, that's the goal. That's what we're looking for. But until we get there, we need to use the faith that we have to guide us and sustain us. As I started off by saying, there's a lot that can threaten us. We can feel very threatened by our mortality. We can feel very threatened by the instability in the world. Now, the reality is there's nothing new about this. Sometimes these days you hear people talking about, oh, young people, it's so difficult for young people, the world is so uncertain. Well, (laughs) actually, the reality is uh, you've never been safer to live on planet Earth than we are right now. There are fewer wars now than ever in recorded history. Uh, The healthcare that's available, the food that's available, the opportunity for education, whether it's others educating us or us educating ourselves is abundant. And, yes, compared to the uh, privileges that uh, the post-war generation had, my generation, compared to that, yes, the present generation does have, obviously, more insecurity. But compared to what most human beings on the planet have had for most of human history, uh, that period in time, post-war, World War II was unusually secure. Uh, instability, insecurity, impermanence is the reality of our existence. And So what is it that sustains us through having an open, honest receptivity to this, not just telling ourselves stories? And what is it that sustains us? Well, I would say it's faith. Yeah, it's trust. And, and learning to... Develop this, really making this a project. We can. Yes, we long for knowledge and liberation, but I would say that more or less looks after itself if it's the time. You know, the the trees bear fruit when it's ready. It's not like you've got to beat the tree to bear fruit. You can pump it with fertilizer, but if you're not careful, you'll probably poison it. Or even if it does grow faster, the fruit probably be tasteless. Uh, there's an organic natural unfolding and it's according with that natural organic unfolding of our heart's aspiration for liberation that we want to be nourishing, not just force-feeding it with willfulness and naive uh, belief. So an organic, inspected, carefully considered, questioned form of faith. And how do we cultivate this? Well, like everything else in life, we learn to live in faith by getting it wrong, by making mistakes, when we get lost, when we get lost in defaulting to stories again. And when we catch ourselves, uh, I've been telling myself some some really dumb story there. You know, I've told myself that story just for years and years and years. I was telling myself that story when I was 15 years old, for goodness sake. What am I doing telling myself that story now? Well, I just forgot, that's all. <laughs> and what do we do? We begin again. And that's one of the most wonderful aspects of this Buddha's teachings that we've all had the good fortune to inherit, that we can always begin again. It doesn't matter how much we get lost. You know, the great beings got lost... That's how they found the way. Getting lost means we've got to find our way back again. In a way, don't misunderstand what I'm saying, but in a way, the more often we get lost, the better. Because the more often we get lost, the more effort we have to make to find the way again. And the more effort we make to find the way again, the more likely we are to stay committed to it. And you'll find, you read the history of the great teachers and like there's a story of Ajahn Charles I was reading recently where he was talking about when he was a young monk and and he he got all lost and caught up in in sewing a robe. He was sitting out in the broad sunlight, which in this country it doesn't sound like a stupid thing to do, but in the northeast of Time that's a really stupid thing to do in the middle of the day to be sitting out in the bright sunshine. Uh, he was sewing this robe and it was probably hand woven. Village cloth really coarse, and he was talking about when he was relating this story, he was talking about how they didn't have sewing machines; they just had these blunt, really blunt needles, and he kept pricking his finger, and blood was getting on the robe, and he was really in a hurry to get this dumb job finished and you know, this tedious job that he was had it doing. And she, he was so busy caught up in trying to get it finished that he didn't even realize that he was sitting out in the midday sun until his teacher came along. and said, What are you doing? What, 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 what on earth are you doing sitting out here in the middle of the day in the broad sunlight? And He said, oh, I'm just trying to get this finished so I can get off my sitting and walking meditation. And uh, Well, the teacher gave him a little reflection and he realized that He was lost, Uh, he was lost, totally caught up. The fact is that level of work, the external work, mending our clothes, mending our buildings, preparing food, cleaning up after food, that level is never really finished. Getting caught up in the idea that we're going to finish it as if somehow it'll be finished once and for all. It's never finished once and for all as long as we're alive. There's always something more to be doing. There's always something else that needs to be done. A window needs to be repaired or a relationship that needs to be attended to or exercise that needs to be done. Yeah, so there's always some more to do on that level. We get lost. We get caught up in deluded thinking. But when we get lost, this is the good news and this is one of the benefits of being able to live with faith and trust and Dhamma principles is that that, that Intuition that now, however many times we fail, we can always begin again. Yeah. Doesn't matter how many times we fail, how many times we get angry. Well, it's always regrettable when we get caught up and lost in anger. It's always regrettable when we get caught up and lost for power, manipulation. It's always regrettable when we get caught and lost in being greedy. Yeah. But however many times we do it, we have faith that we can always begin again. We trust in our heart's aspiration for liberation. And, and that's the reality. We can always begin again. In this moment, the conditions that conspire to bring this moment about like this have never been like this ever before and will never be like this ever again, ever. And this moment is always actually, actually, the physicists will tell you this, the chemists will tell you this, the biologists will tell you this, the philosophers will tell you this, and the great spiritual adepts will tell us this. this moment is always unique and within that is the possibility that things can change and be new and that's what faith really does for us, it opens us up to discovering something really new liberation therefore when it comes is going to be new it's not going to be just rehashing the old stuff we're all very clever and we can all re-manipulate and rearrange the furniture Uh, rearrange the ideas in our heads and rearrange the emotions in our hearts, but what 's called for is something radically new, and opening ourselves up to that which is new is something that faith can help us with and uh, thank you very much this evening for your attention <clears throat> I uh...